Welcome to Hearing the Pulitzers, a piece-by-piece, episode-by-episode exploration of the winners of the Pulitzer Prize in Music, with hosts Andrew Grenade and David Thurmeyer. Welcome to Hearing the Pulitzers, Episode 8, where we're traveling to 1950 and the eighth winner of the Pulitzer Prize in Music, Giancarlo Minotti, for his first full-length opera, The Consul. So Dave, I'm curious about, we've never talked about Minotti in all the years we've known each other, so I'm curious about your background. What do you know about him? Where have you encountered his music before? Uh, not, not really very much, actually. I, kn- I knew him more for who he was, which was Samuel mm-hmm. Barber's partner. And I knew he was a composer, knew he was an opera composer primarily, but they were always operas that were either done by high school kids, like Amal and the Night Visitors, or they were kind of short operas. I guess this one isn't that short, actually. It's about over two hours. But, right, but he wrote several before this, yeah. little short one-act operas. Right, so I, so I wasn't really, and not being a big opera person, I hadn't really you know, latched on to his music too much. But a couple of years ago, we had a former student who graduated uh, from the conservatory named Richard Jarek, and he was a pianist. And he told me, oh, you've got to listen to Minotti's Piano Concerto. And so wow. I did. I didn't even know he wrote one. I didn't and, know you wrote one until right now. Yeah, yeah. It's Piano Concerto in F, which sounds a lot like a certain Gershwin Piano right. Concerto in F, and there's maybe slight similarities. Uh, but that's that was, uh, was sort of like, oh, he writes other things besides operas. And so I, I kind of got into it. But I, but until <laughs> until this, I had not studied one of his works. So this was uh, exciting for me, and I, I'm pleased with what I saw. So how about yeah. yourself? Well, I'm married to an opera singer, so... <laughs> Uh, actually, um, Joy, my wife, performed Amal the Night Visitors when she was in high school, but then she also uh, did it in college, and she was Amal both times, oh. so I've seen her perform Amal. And then for her uh, graduate auditions, the aria from The Telephone, which is one of the operas, the one-act operas that he produced right before the console, uh, it was like her go-to, so since I was her accompanist by that point, <laughs> I learned... <laughs> In great detail, the telephone opera, yeah, uh, the, the aria from the telephone, and so I performed that several times. So that's, I mean, it's kind of a one-on-one personal of those short one-act operas. But I had never seen one of his full-length operas until we were preparing to do the console. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think he's uh, probably overshadowed by Barber for uh, reasons we'll get to, and when you talk to talk about Barber, mm-hmm. but I think uh, that this. Peace and the fact is we're going to talk about this was the first opera that won the Pulitzer Prize in music. And that says something, I think. And we'll get into all the reviews and all the background of it. But right. yeah, I think it's a well-deserved win, too. And it really seems to give you a good sense of what his aesthetic is like and, and what was happening at the time, too. He captured yeah. it well. Well, why don't we get in and start with telling the story and look and see who he was and why he might have written this opera. Telling the story. So he was uh, born in Italy. Uh, Minotti was born in Italy. He was, I think, the sixth of ten children I read. Yeah, huge family. Yeah, huge family. Very wealthy family. Yes, well-to-do. And ended up going to... uh, you know, studied in Italy and was they realized oh this this guy's good he really should go somewhere and study so he went to Curtis in uh, Philadelphia and studied there took I forget the teacher's name uh, it was a Italian uh, composition teacher there and it, it just sort of 
took off from there and he became a composition student and met Samuel Barber. They were both students at the same time there, same age, I believe. Uh, and so that was a big, big thing for him. And then he just sort of took off from there. Wrote, we wrote operas when he was a young kid and just being Italian, probably you're, it's, you live and I'm breathe. Naturally gravitated yes, toward it. Yes, you live and breathe opera. So it uh, became his, his forte. Well, his name is kind of synonymous in the mid part of the 20th century. He isn't, I think when people talk about American opera now, he isn't quite as on everyone's lips. But in the mid part of the century, from everything I've read, he was the guy. He was mm -hmm. the opera composer in the United States that, you know, kind of like we look back in the romantic period, someone like Wagner, who dedicated himself to one style. We think of Minotti dedicating himself to opera, and that's why, I mean, just talking about the piano concerto, it's, it would have never crossed my mind that he would have composed a piano concerto, because I think of him so much as a vocal composer. Mm -hmm. Exactly, and he really made his name doing that. Uh, and so clearly very talented, very successful, and uh, yeah, did very well. But he also did things besides writing classical music, and this is where I think he's kind of an interesting figure. He also wrote film scripts and mm -hmm. and was kind of, I want to say some of his music borders on being like musicals or a little bit, it's kind of a weird hybrid of yeah. opera and Broadway. And I think that probably was attractive to people like Bernstein and those that came after him. And you can see a little bit of that in this piece and that comes well, from his training. He, even a mall of the night visitor, so mm. very popular. There, Christmas doesn't go by that it's not produced somewhere in the United States. Right. But it was originally written for television. It's literally a television opera. So he was already thinking in terms of the new media and how he could reach a wider audience. And I think that also plays into the the more musical aspects that he's kind of, I mean, like Bernstein was, right? Kind of crossing the boundaries between what is opera, what is musical, and trying to communicate to the contemporary American audience, which is more... Um, disposed, predisposed, I, I think, for musicals than for opera. Sure. There's a much bigger audience for musicals than opera today, and same thing in the 1950s. And just as an aside, I saw, uh, looking through some of the, his other operas, and The Medium and this one, they were pr uh, played, like you said, on TV. Boy, have we lost that. I mean, to, this <sighs> American culture is really kind of fallen i mean they were playing bernstein was a you know extremely popular figure in the 50s 60s and now so listeners if you don't know this about dave yet <laughs> he pines for the 1950s not the 50s the 60s <laughs> <laughs> oh you got to get to the beatles that's right that's right uh, but just the fact that these operas would be premiered on tv on cbs and you, i watched a video of cbs in you know black and white glorious black and white uh, kind of discussing and the, the, here's an opera by Giancarlo Menotti. It's like, wow, when, when would that happen now? Well, you almost have, I mean, the major uh, radio stations, the major television stations, the major record companies, I think they all felt like they had a, a duty to the American public to produce this art as mm -hmm. well as the commerce that they're producing. And so they were trying to balance each. So I think you see that throughout you know, this decade that we're entering into with the hearing the Pulitzers. Uh, something that we've gotten away from now. Yeah, yeah, it's very different. But like you said, he was very successful, and this was extremely successful. Uh, it, we'll get into all the reviews about it, but it was 
well thought of, I think, for the most part. And we'll. Uh... Well, it seems that um, this piece is one of those that you know you mentioned the film script that he originally was going to write a film script for MGM, and he had this idea where he had been reading about the immigrants, especially this is right after World War II. Of course, he knows everything's going on in Europe because he's concerned about you know, friends and family who are still there. And he reads a story in the New York Times of a Polish woman who was coming to the United States and ended up stuck in the bureaucracy at Ellis Island and ultimately hung herself at Ellis Island because she couldn't get to the bureaucracy to get into the United States. And so that kind of spun in his mind and he wanted to make a a movie about it and MGM said that's too dark <laughs> we can never make a movie about that story mm -hmm. and so he said well I'll make it an opera because operas are you know dark, dark. and sad often <laughs> right and think about when this was written so we're talking about late 40s or 1950-ish around that point uh, and in a lot of Europe it had now gone communist and had been taken over by Soviets and uh, uh -huh. the Eastern Bloc had started by that point in Czechoslovakia in 1948 uh, and and so there's this repressive nature and so the bureaucracy that he saw there or read about I think was also kind of a metaphor or an, you know, kind of explained what was happening in the Eastern Bloc as well and that kind of mind-numbing bureaucracy and mm -hmm. Just, you can't get anywhere. You're just Kafka, kind of just spinning around, spinning your wheels, and that that there's a despair in this opera that is very powerful. And as you mentioned, it is actually, you know, you said the woman committed suicide in the story, the Polish woman. And spoiler alert, uh, there's a similar ending in this opera as well. Well, maybe we should just kind of give a brief plot outline and if you're not interested in this just hit your <laughs> fast forward button about 30 seconds and you can kind of jump past uh, but we will be talking about the ending I think a lot because musically yeah. it's fascinating what uh, Minotti ended up doing but you basically have um, Magda Sorel who's the the main female character and she is married to John Sorel and that's actually the beginning of the opera as he comes in bleeding on the from the leg because he's been shot he's uh, rallying against the government and he is pushing back and is a revolutionary in some ways. And then they have uh, a young child, a baby, and then also Magda's mother lives with them. So the scenes basically shift back between Magda and John's apartment and the waiting room for the consul, who is the, the name of the opera, <laughs> who never appears. We never she spends the entire time in the waiting room trying to get into the consul and never can get past the secretary who keeps just giving out forms. <laughs> form after form bureaucracy. after form. It is bureaucracy. <laughs> It's like the DMV times 20. It's horrible. And she's not the only one. There's also a magician. There are other people trying to get out of the country. And they each keep saying, we've been waiting. And the secretary says, go to another. Yep, fill out this form and come back tomorrow. Mm -hmm. And so they just keep appearing. And then finally, at the end of the opera in despair, uh, because her son dies, she can't get an, a word to her husband. And so in despair, she ends up killing herself right as the phone is ringing saying, hey, we've processed your paperwork. You're good to go. <sighs> and that's the end of the opera. Yeah. It, <laughs> it's, it's horrible. Heartbreaking. Yeah. And it's done very skillfully. Now, we should mention that Minotti wrote the libretto himself, which yeah. is I, it's in English, which I want to also, as an aside here, say how much I enjoy hearing opera in English and wish it would be done more. 
I wish we would hear European operas performed in English, just as my soapbox here. But anyway, uh, <laughs> it was we have a lot of soapboxes today. Yes, a lot of soapboxes today. I know. <laughs> the we're, bringing out... we're cooped up in the quarantine here, so we got to get this out. <laughs> but it, it, but it's it's very, you know, I think like Britain operas, which I love too, are a lot more formal in their mm-hmm. language. I think this is a little more American, I'd say, yeah. in its in its idioms and and you know. So Minotti did a really good job kind of translating that even though it's, well, it takes place in some unspecified Eastern European country. Yeah, you don't know where it takes yeah. place. But also, also, I think the Americanist comes from, I mean, this was not premiered at the New York Met- Metropolitan Opera. It was on Broadway. Right. And it was very successful on Broadway. It had 269 performances on Broadway. It's a Broadway opera, mm-hmm. which I think speaks to the, the language is not going to be the kind of... Um, high language of opera it's going to be a much more direct and it is incredibly direct and in fact some of the language that uh, you're reading i mean there are parts that are beautifully poetic just absolutely uh stunning in terms of libretto but then there are parts like the the famous papers aria where she's just (laughs) singing papers 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 because she's just so frustrated and throwing them all over the stage um so i think you kind of he walks the line Mm -hmm. making it very accessible um but still having these moments of really beautiful mm-hmm. and it's it's engaging as a dramatic opera as well just in uh he uses dreams i think well there are two kind of large dream sequences and uh, one at the end and then one earlier in the opera and that's a that's an old tried and true trick from opera and early musicals too but it's very effective so it, it it's good dramatically as well as the message and the meaning and the music behind it too Behind the notes. Let's talk a little bit about the music. Um, so there are, of course, aria and recitative, but there's not a lot of distinction between them. No. They, they flow pretty well. Uh, but in, in my hearing, the recitative, I thought, was the more successful parts than the aria parts. I thought whenever he flipped into, you know, the lush kind of singing, mm-hmm. it tended to be really Italian in terms yes. of the way that he writes these melodies. Yes. But whenever he's in the vernacular writing for the kind of recitative speech-like sections, it sounds very speech-like. In fact, you sometimes you couldn't even, I couldn't even tell they were really singing because it was just so natural. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So are you thinking that it... it that hurts the flow a little bit of the opera with the like sudden a little more choppy like okay we've had these recitative sections and now break up aria and here comes the no i didn't hear it as being that bright it, yeah. they, they flow seamlessly one into the other mm-hmm. it, you can definitely tell the difference i mean the there's one kind of bring the house down aria by magda right at the end of act two and it's it's the, the it's the italianate lyrical mm-hmm big moment kind of thing that the audience we the performance we watched uh they it was like two minutes of applause when yeah. she sat down so you can yeah, really maybe we can listen that's the paper sorry maybe yeah. you should listen to just a little bit of that
thing that amazes me about this aria is it's gorgeous and has these beautiful, in fact, the, the beginning, the lines, uh, which you didn't get to hear, but she says, to this we've come that men withhold the world from men, no ship nor shore for him who drowns at sea, no home nor grave for him who dies on land, to this we've come that man be born a stranger upon God's earth. I mean, that's it's wonderful. Gorgeous. Yeah. It's gorgeous. Uh, but then halfway through, her frustration just kind of boils over, and you get this uh, repetition where she's saying, Magda Sorel, age 33, <laughs> yes. and she's just repeating everything she's put down on those forms, and just, it's like one of the mad scenes, the famous Italian mm. mad scenes from the Romantic period, mm -hmm. where she just flies off the handle, and all that frustration of days sitting in that office just come pouring forth, and it's incredibly effective. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And it, it's kind of got all sorts of styles. I, I was reading the New Gro the Grove article about Minotti, and he was saying that, or he was, the, the authors were saying that Minotti was really concerned about audience accessibility and mm -hmm. having m melody and have, writing in a tonal style. And th that is a, a good example. But he, like a lot of your American composers at that time period, he's good at mixing styles mm -hmm. for whatever he needs. So when the music when things are getting violent, like when John comes in after he was shot, or when he's running from the secret police, then the music's very dissonant and aggressive mm -hmm. and has a very different sound, but then it'll just turn and be really lush and, and lyrical. So it's really skillfully done, the mixing of styles and mixing of music. It is, but it also points to, uh, out to me one of the, uh, the weaknesses, I think, of the yeah. opera, which is that it's a little bit over the top. <laughs> <laughs> Just a little. I mean, <laughs> this is the opera that melodrama. Aren't the word all melodrama, operas over the top? <laughs> no, this is more. <laughs> this is like uh, Tosca turned up a little bit to me. Ah, okay, okay. A little too much. Yeah. So I think, but I think part of the the feel I get from that is because the music does shift on a dime. So it's not like you have a consistent style throughout. So at some points it's just so overwhelming. And sometimes like with that papers aria, it really works. Mm -hmm. And sometimes I think it's a little bit too much. Like I found, <laughs> I know you like the dream sequence. I found the dream sequence at the end a little bit too much. Um, in its, in its music or in the theme? In its music. Or, yeah, no, yeah. the theme I thought dramatically it worked yeah. wonderfully because she goes and she sticks her head in the oven is how she's going to kill herself by asphyxiation. Uh, she's going to, suck in gas mm -hmm. and so you get this hallucination which is exactly you know dramatically what we'd expect but i thought the music was a little bit it's like a little bit on the nose <laughs> <laughs> yeah fair enough fair enough I, I but there are other parts i thought are uh, just the despair of the people sitting in that waiting room yeah. and how they speak to each other and the music that accompanies that i thought was very effective and we should mention you've already alluded to some of the characters i think those are some of them are for comic relief. Some of them are for dramatic relief. So, mm -hmm. for example, there's a scene with a, a woman who doesn't speak any English, and she's Italian, and there's an, a man there who helps her kind of translate, and mm -hmm. she's having problems. She can't see her daughter, I think, or who's dying yeah. or something. And, it's just, again, showing that bureaucracy and the frustrations. So that she's a really poignant character. Uh, my favorite is the magician, uh, Nika Magadoff, who's like puts on all sorts of hoots and hijinks in the middle of the office. Well, in the here. middle of this middle of the second act, yeah. right, when it's the, the time at which you need the break. Yeah, yeah. He starts talking. He starts, you know, uh, taking watches from people and play, doing magic tricks and doing all kinds of fun stuff. And then the secretary is not having it. 
And she's like, what, what do you, do you know where you are? You're at the consulate here. What are you doing? Why are you goofing around here? And he's singing some very clever waltz, sort of like twisted waltz music. Yeah. Yeah. Well, but, and you mentioned the secretary, who's one of my favorite characters. Oh, yeah. Uh, just because uh, she's so deadpan in yeah. the delivery. And then there's this one moment when her boyfriend calls on the phone. <laughs> That's a great scene. <laughs> it's a mar marvelous scene because she turns completely she's like oh and suddenly her voice is higher and she's light and coquettish and yeah. someone comes out and she looks and she's like form 33 and she turns back and talking to her boyfriend it's it's absolutely perfect because you've been in those situations mm -hmm. you've been in those waiting rooms where the person that you're the doctor you're waiting to see and the secretary is sitting there and you can't get back and she's giving you more and more forms that you have to fill out and then she's on the phone talking and laughing and then you mm -hmm. go up and completely deadpan ignores you or something yeah yeah <laughs> yeah that's very true i'm curious your thought about the dramatic idea of the console not ever appearing or kind mm -hmm. of what what does the console represent and what do you think it might have represented for Manati? is it the the mm. state kind of the oppressive nature of a totalitarian state or the fact that you can never get to that person who's you you would think oh i'm going to see an opera called the console there must be a character who's going right. to sing and there is not a character so and, and the moment that she can get in to see the console is when she faints dead away mm -hmm. and isn't able to do it uh yeah i agree i think that that is so he's trying to portray the totalitarian uh dictatorship but i also think you know part of the problem with bureaucracy is that it is so faceless it's always pushing mm. responsibility off on someone else i would love to help you but I just need you to fill out this form. Or you forgot to, to bring you, this. But yeah. Exactly. Mm -hmm. Or this isn't filled out correctly or, you know, all of that. And I think in many ways the console then is the faceless bureaucracy just mm. literally personified. Yeah. And you get one little glimpse, even more dark, you get one glimpse of supposedly the console in, in his office talking mm -hmm. to a secret police uh, and that that was the, one of the person who was hunting Magda, right? And so it's even more like, oh wow! So it's all one big everyone's conspiracy. working together, and working against yeah, her, working against her exactly. So, so I, yeah, I think you're right. I mean, from a dramatic perspective, it's really powerful and effective. The music, I yeah, I I I, I liked it. I was I don't know. I fell for it. I I guess I fall for. <laughs> This kind of thing, but maybe I was just so happy it was in, in English opera. Or in, <laughs> I could I could pretty much understand it, uh, but it was uh, yeah, like maybe a little overwrought at times, uh, but but for maybe what it was. Maybe it's time to talk about yeah. Let's we'll see what other people hit or thought miss about it. What right? other people thought, and then what we thought. Yeah, yeah. Hit or miss. So you clipped some interesting reviews and uh, two interesting people uh olin downs and then our previous topic on our podcast virgil thompson so uh, i'll start with olin downs and then you can take thompson great so downs is writing in the new york times mm -hmm. this is, and these are both the reviews of the premiere yes so olin downs says he has produced Minotti has produced an opera of eloquence momentousness and intensity of expression unequaled by any native composer uh-oh mm. yeah mm. this opera is written from the heart with a blazing sincerity and a passion of human understanding it is as contemporary as the cold war surrealism television the atom bomb uh, and then 
about the point of the present day world. And this is done with a new wedding of the English language which, with music in a way which is singable, intensely dramatic, and poetic by turns, and always of beauty. And that kind of goes along with what Manati's own self-view was, that he wanted to write memorable music that was accessible and reflected the text. So he was pretty favorable, I think, to it. Yeah. Thompson was favorable, too, but um, as we discussed <laughs> in the last episode, <laughs> he's going to be a little bit... Uh, saltier is that the little word twist yeah a little, a little saltier twist. yeah <laughs> so he starts out by saying the musical score is apt and ever illustrative it is also valuable to the narrative through its sustained emotional plan harmonically it is a bit chromatic and fussy <laughs> monolically a shade undistinguished <laughs> and then uh, towards the end this is how he ends uh, the console is a music drama of great power in a production remarkably efficient i doubt if it makes musical history <laughs> But the musical elements contribute in a major way to a spectacle that may well have its place in our century's history of the stage. Minotti, Mr. Minotti, though not quite a first-class composer, Ouch. is surely a bold, original, dramatic author, and music is the language he writes his dramas in. <laughs> Ouch. Not quite, a first, not quite a first-rate yeah, composer. It's going along great, and he says, not quite a first-class composer, yeah. so yeah. it's good for what he can accomplish, basically. <laughs> Ouch. Yeah, I can I could see that happening. So uh, you're kind of Owen Downs here, and I'm kind of Virgil Thompson in our reactions. Yeah. I think. Yeah, I, I I don't know. Maybe it's because I didn't know what to expect because I barely knew any of his music at all, and I but I knew these were popular and they were mm -hmm. uh, they were interesting pieces, and they have fallen out of favor for a lot of reasons probably. But uh, just the the whole idea of American opera at this time in the mid 20th mm -hmm. century. I think is something that's interesting to revisit. And well, it's one of those operas yeah. that, as I was watching it, I thought it really should be produced more. Mm -hmm. And it's very within the um, the possibility of any good college to yeah. produce. Yeah. And it really should be produced there. And I read a review. This is it's. There've been a couple of recent productions, uh, and I read one of the reviews, and it said that uh, especially in our day and age, this has a lot to say to say the immigrant crisis oh, sure. and, and the ways in which American bureaucracy is working and for us to consider um, how our bureaucracy is working for those who are on the margins of mm -hmm. American society, which I thought was an interesting kind of uh, twist to bring this into the present day, very much the same way that it was very um, contemporary in 1950 to be talking about people who were living in a communist dictatorship, basically, mm -hmm. how it reads. Yeah, I think this is kind of a timeless story in some way because we've always had bureaucracy and always had mm -hmm. the the people holding the power and holding the cards and then the the average people coming in and just can't get anywhere with them. I mean, we're seeing it now and with our situation where people can't get unemployment benefits or things like that because they're stuck up against the bureaucracy of a state mm -hmm. system that's not working or something. So it, it yeah, I think it, it would be really resonant. You could easily update the set or update the, the situation yep. to reflect today. And yeah, it's very doable as well. Instead of a, a college orchestra trying to play Wagner or something where it's going to be a real stretch, it would be, you know, you could do this one really well. Yeah. So for me, I think it's uh, definitely a powerful piece and I can absolutely see why it won. Mm-hmm. 
and I'm not surprised. Um, and it, interestingly enough, started a whole kind of fad among the Pulitzers yeah. for operas. There are a lot of operas that we'll see in the 1950s as we move through the next episodes. And we may have mentioned it before, but this is not going to be Mr. Minotti's only visit or only podcast because he'll That's be right. back we'll again. Back to him. Yeah, for in another just about five episodes. He, yeah, two in the 1950s for another opera. So, uh, yeah, so it. it it's interesting why it was chosen at that particular time or why people started mm. bringing operas to the fore again. It is kind of seen as the pinnacle of, I mean, a lot of people would say symphony is probably the instrumental genre that's the most right. highbrow or high, most highest peak. And then opera kind of puts everything together. So yeah. I could see why, and especially with Broadway being popular at this time, uh, you're starting to see some more interest so yeah so hit or miss uh no it's a hit for me okay a qualified hit. A quali <laughs> qualified hit. <laughs> no i enjoyed it I, like i said i think that dramatically it's very effective um there's some moments that were over the top to, for me but for the most part it's i think it's skillfully done and um, parts of it are just beautiful the, the one part we didn't mention that i really um really love is the end of the first scene when Magda's saying goodbye to John and the mother is there too and they have a trio and it's just oh, heartbreaking. Yeah. yeah, it is. Absolutely heartbreaking. It is. And you can mention also that uh, it's a very female-driven opera. It is. Uh, compared to a lot of other operas that where the females are not or kind of the castaways or or they always die or in a silly way or something i mean the it's magda's really a prominent character she's almost in every scene and singing all the time the secretary is a huge figure some of the side uh people there's the other there's the one woman who gets through vera right. she she uh everything works for her at the bureaucracy but then the, the poor Italian woman has a problem. So mm -hmm. it's really ecumenical in that way, too. So a lot of you get to see a female perspective a lot. Yeah. So I, I, I'd, I'd give it a hit. And uh, I, I, it was my first time seeing it. And as I say, I'm not critical of Minotti yet because I don't know enough of his music. So mm -hmm. we'll see where I am in a few episodes. If, when if we come back to Minotti again. Yeah, when we come back to him, if it's a little, if I'm kind of, all right, I'm over the overwroughtness or the. <laughs> <laughs> right, come on, I want some dissonance here. No tunes, but we'll see. But I think for now it was a, a really good, winner and especially for the time. So we should mention the jury report with with our old favorite Mr. Chalmers Clifton again. Still holding court. Still holding court on April fifth, nineteen fifty, and. So here are the other pieces, and this is the letter. So he, he says that we've chosen this piece. The choice was unanimous. And so he uh, says, let's see, any interesting quotes here. Uh, Minotti's talents drew him to everything that concerns the lyric theater. He is, however, a highly trained musician. He's not just a melodramatic composer. Uh, having at his fingertips every technical resource. So very positive here. And a, he, oh, he says the success of the medium and the console may mean something very significant for the future of American lyrical theater away from the rather cumbersome machinery of institutionalized opera. Oh, what do you think of that so they, quote? They liked that it was on Broadway as opposed to At in the, the opera houses. Yeah. So here are the other pieces that I, I've never even heard of this composer. Okay. So 
we have the second choice was Wallingford Rieger's Peace for Brass Choir. And then for third choice, Bernard Wagner, Wagner W-A-G-E-N-A-A-R, hmm. Symphony Number no. 4. And he says the second, second choice was not unanimous, one judge preferring Mr. Wagner's Symphony Number no. 4. Okay. Yeah. Rieger, of course, we know. Yes. But I've never heard of the other composer. No, no. And it says there were an impressive number of applications for the 1950 Pulitzer Prize, making a total of 56 compositions to look through. Oh, so it's growing. So yeah. if we go back to the very first, <laughs> all the way back to Schumann, yeah. and there we saw that it was basically, well, no one's applied, and we like him, so he's getting the Pulitzer. He's number here one. We have, yeah. here we have 56 uh, applications. Yeah. Rieger's an interesting... Uh, choice to even make the top three because in my mind with what we've seen he isn't aesthetically in what the Pulitzer has been awarding up until this right. point so he would have been a sharp kind of sideways turn in terms of what they were honoring mm -hmm. yeah they described his uh, it was symphony for brass or peace for brass choir is a short and brilliant venture in dissonant but pleasant sounding that's an interesting way to phrase it. A venture in dissonant but pleasant-sounding counterpoint for brass instruments. Hmm. Interesting. Yeah. So, in any case, this was it was a, the choice was unanimous for number one, and then numbers two and three were had a little bit of dissension, a little uh, controversy there. But uh, I think of those three, the fact that it was an opera probably yeah. gives it the upper hand. Well, yeah, I think it's, it's a success. worthy winner. It's very much of the time. Yeah. Um, it's very much, uh, well, it was so successful even in the time, but not just in terms of popular success, but I think musically it's successful. So. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Okay. Well, thanks for uh, listening here. This, that's it for our episode of Hearing the Pulitzers today. As, you, as always, you can find more about this project at our website, hearingthepulitzers.com, where you'll also find links and a short biography and a fancy picture of the composer of Giancarlo Manatti. And as I said, we'll come back to him in a few years. Also follow us on Facebook and Twitter at H Pulitzers for links and trivia between episodes. Finally, join us next episode when we'll be exploring the second opera to win in as many years, Douglas Moore's Giants in the Earth. Until then, keep listening. Mm -hmm.